happy Monday. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Bree Fallon, and with me is... Dave McConaughey. I'm delighted that it's another Monday, and we get to chat for a few minutes and introduce everyone, all of our listeners, to something that is really fun, and I had a great time recording it. This is a huge roundtable that uh, I had the pleasure of organizing uh, this past fall at the American Academy of Religion in San Diego, and I contacted about a dozen young scholars. I wanted scholars that um, had gotten their degree in the last 10 years or so, and I managed to have an amazing conversation with Richard Newton. Chris Jones, Rebecca King, Jenna Gray Hildenbrand, Kevin Minister, and Bradley Onishi. And so I'm pleased to present What Does Religious Literacy Mean in Your Context Roundtable? Take it away. Hello, I'm David McConaughey, and I'm again at the American Academy of Religion. It's 2019, and we're in lovely San Diego, and I have so many people, so many amazing people to introduce you today. We are going to be talking about religious literacy and what that means for my guests today. They're going to tell us, and we're going to have a discussion about, but also in the context of the American Academy of Religion's newly released religious literacy guidelines for schools, for people that teach in religion, for people that teach religion not in religious studies department for people that are in high schools and it is a very broad and interesting document and i'm hoping we have some interesting geographical different thematic different theoretical thoughts about it today first i'd like everyone to introduce themselves and we will start with richard newton I teach at the University of Alabama, um, the Department of Religious Studies. Uh, most of my courses are on issues of race and social formation, um, particularly looking at how the idea of text or scriptures um, are a tool for those kinds of politics. And next. My name is Chris Jones, and I teach at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. We are a small, uh, municipally operated public university. We're the only uh, four-year public university that's municipal outside of the CUNY system. Fun fact. Mm -hmm. um, and I am the only uh, tenure track, the only uh, professor of religious studies there. I run the program, the major and the minor in religious studies, and teach a lot of gen ed classes and then upper division classes as my students need them. And next. I'm uh, Rebecca King. I'm an associate professor at Middle Tennessee State University. Uh, I'm here with my colleague who will introduce herself in a minute, uh, but I was found with, hired with her to found a religious studies program and teach a number of courses on religion in the world. Excellent. And moving around the table, we have so many people. We're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Brad Onishi, and I'm associate professor at uh, Skidmore College uh, up in uh, upstate New York, Saratoga Springs. And uh, it's a liberal arts college, and it's actually, um, I think it's worth pointing out, most of, it's a very, very, very secular um, part of the country, and most of my students um, identify as non-religious. And so in my teaching, that is um, something that is always on my mind. I'm Kevin Minister. I'm an associate professor of religion at Shenandoah University, which is a United Methodist school about an hour and a half outside DC with 2,000 undergrad, 2,000 grad. We have a very strong professional focus, so the religion program is small. We only have two lines, but we also have the Center for Islam in the Contemporary World, which uh, complements our program. And our teaching is mostly in gen ed, so 
We have to figure out how to teach religious studies for students who identify as pre-health majors or business majors or uh, performing arts majors. And I promise, dear listeners, that I am the last person at the table. (laughs) I'm Jenna Gray Hildenbrand, Associate Professor of Religious Studies, and along with Dr. Rebecca King, the co-founder of our Religious Studies major at Middle Tennessee State University, um, which is a public institution in Middle Tennessee. Um, And I teach religion in the U.S., but many other religion classes. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for agreeing to take time. We all have such busy schedules at conferences. And I'm so thankful to get so many people all at once. It's such a, <laughs> it's such a treat. Um, let me throw a question out. Um, for some of you, maybe religious literacy is the thing you think about all the time and, and write about and teach about. Um, when we ask religious literacy, what is that thing? What are some of the first things that you would say? How would you tell your neighbor about religious literacy if you happen to meet them while mowing the lawn or taking out the trash? <laughs> what What would you say to them about religious literacy? I'm, I'm curious what Brad will say since he lives. He says that he lives in a very secular, non-religious area. So, what What does this conversation look like with your your lawn mowing neighbor? Well, it's funny because my my neighbors are probably religious, but my students aren't. Ah. And, um, <laughs> So when I'm explaining to my students, you know, who take a gen ed class and then say, oh, maybe I'm interested in minor or major, but this is, why would I do this? And my mom's going to hate it. And I don't want to have to have that conversation. Um, what I turn to is, look, if you sign up with us and you, you sort of dedicate yourself to this project of becoming religious, religiously literate through a minor, through a, just a couple of other classes, a major, whatever it is, what we do is we we enter into the the worlds and communities of religious people, religious actors. And that's sometimes uncomfortable. It's sometimes difficult. It's wondrous. It's heartbreaking. It's infuriating. And it's inspiring. And by foregrounding religion, you get to do it all, student, right? (laughs) So we do gender. We do race. We do immigration. We do law. We do philosophy. But by using the prism of religion at first, you then get to illuminate all those other aspects of the human condition. To me, that makes religious studies unique. It's, it's to me why I'm a religious studies scholar and not something else. Because that prism is so expansive that if you want a window into the human condition, this is the great place to start. And if you want to develop the virtues of patience and em- empathy in a way that will allow you to reckon with the complexity and inconvenient facts of our like lifetimes, like climate apocalypse and so on, this is the great place to start. Okay, and so for me, that that is that to me is like my my go to speech, my my hurrah speech about religion, literacy, and entering into this whole project of of um, becoming religiously literate. Hmm. Hurrah! Yeah. <laughs> so so you said hurrah, Chris. I did say hurrah. <laughs> would you pitch things similarly to your students? What, what would you What would you tell your students? I would pitch things similarly. I think there's great intrinsic value in studying religion because for the reasons that Brad enumerated, um, it, it, it does give us this window into the human condition. At the same time, my students, like Kevin's students, are very much pre-professionally focused. Um, looking at the, the learning goals that the AR has outlined, I would have to translate those into resume ease. I would have to look at those and figure out how they connect to LinkedIn in order to sell this to my dean or to my, my uh, VP. Should, should we be putting our syllabi through the, the, the resume scanners and seeing how they scan? Is, it, is that where we're headed? 
Well, I'm part of a working group at my university right now looking into translating syllabus learning outcomes into things students can put on LinkedIn. Yeah. So, yeah, that is at where we are. Yeah. For better and for worse. But For if, worse. But, but, if, <laughs> but if your students are consumers of education, mm-hmm. not, not that I would think that everybody at the table here would say that religion is a business, right? I think mm-hmm. there's many negative, perhaps, feelings at this table about that. But at the end, they're, they are buying a kind of product from us. And if that product has certain expectations, framing what we do within some of their expectations seems a reasonable compromise mm-hmm. to get them into the door. Maybe. I'm seeing yeah. Richard, Richard is hedging more. So, so, so tell us how that doesn't work. So at the University of Alabama, you know, we are a large public school in the middle of the Bible Belt. Um, it's a research one institution. And I think the... I think the idea of religious literacy is tempting. Um, the idea that we can inform you about uh, the way that religious actors work in the world and the histories attached to it. But the problem, I think, for like a department like ours in that case, and, and also the, the way that those guidelines become uh, limiting, is that there are a lot of other departments that promise similar things. There are, you know, we share uh, religious studies classes or classes on religion with history and anthropology and sociology and anybody else who wants to talk about religion. Um, and so the thing that we are providing, I think, is actually something different. I don't think it's really about knowing religion more and religious people more. But uh, and, and I don't think it's a pro- that's the product that we are selling either. I think I sort of the metaphor that I would use is we are uh, providing a skill set, a sort of toolbox for students to analyze the human, understand how humans work in light of a history that involves this thing called religion. Um, and I think when you separate religion from culture, you know, religion from general human activities, then you've actually created a narrow lane for yourself to operate. So, uh, so that's where Dr. King and I <laughs> <laughs> wrote this. Um, I, I mean, Richard, I, and all of you, I think this is a great conversation. Thank you for inviting us. Um, uh, there's an amazing article that was written by um, Gray Hildebrand and King recently in teaching theology and religious studies um, about um, where we talk about the creation of our program, uh, where we talk about this very issue, and it's something that we contemplated very seriously because we were in this oppor- we had this opportunity to create a program where one didn't exist, and we realized that we were in that unique situation. And so similar to what we see here with the literacy guidelines, you see a combination, both a religious literacy, thinking about it as content, right, memorizing those, those content about religion, but also certain skills, right? And that we, that we use when we're looking at religion, religious content. And so in our program, we identified three skills, description, analysis, and critique as what would work best in our institutional context. And we might wrestle you for the heart of the Bible Belt, my friends, <laughs> in, Murfreesboro, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Um, but maybe my colleague could talk a little, wants to talk a little bit more. We can do back and forth like we do, Rebecca. <laughs> Great. We have a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks, Jenna. I think that uh, one of the nice things about teaching in a place like Middle Tennessee is that we don't have to convince our students that studying religion matters. Mm-hmm. A lot of our students come into the classroom with a sense that they want to know more about religion, that it's important in their lives. And a lot of them have grown up in families where they've been told a certain story about other religious communities that they know isn't quite right. Um, 
and they know might come from a place of sort of bias or misunderstanding, uh, and they want to know what is right. So they're really coming with this question that is drawn out of, I think, a need for religious literacy. Um, so certainly the AR guidelines, I think, are really coming at building from a ground up level in that way. Um, for us, what we are trying to do is think beyond the level of literacy to what we call competency. And uh, in a previous life, I spent a lot of time uh, working in higher education. And one of my areas in my portfolio was literacy basic skills. And literacy basic skills are the ability to read menus, to sort of understand how signs work, very basic forms of literacy. And, and when we translate that into thinking about religious literacy, that's important, but that is work that I see campuses doing in a number of places, like Richard mentioned, anthropology, sociology, history, a number of different uh, disciplines. And so what we do in religious studies is, I hope, a step almost beyond that mm -hmm. towards building competencies, building skills, doing something more than content and database information. And one of the criticisms, I'm sorry. Um, or the feedback that we got when we were working on our program and writing our article was, well, anyone can do description. Anyone can do analysis. Anyone can do critique. And our argument was, well, no. There is something unique about doing description, analysis, and critique. Not unique, but takes a certain religious studies skill to do that for the content of religious studies, to describe and analyze something, and then maybe we can have this conversation, maybe people around this table disagree, when you're analyzing human beings who, for, for example, if I go to my serpent handling church and I am having to describe what is happening when they say that they're anointed by God to drink strychnine, that's different than describing what's happening when people are driving a car. Not that that is inherently different, Right, I'm not saying that there's some sui generis category of religion, mm -hmm. but it does take a different mm -hmm. type of skill to describe and analyze that, and that there, and so we're saying that 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 is that in that there is something of value that we are adding to Middle Tennessee State University that they can't get in history. So, so I would argue I'm, I'm, that we have argued. <laughs> I, I, people, it, it's funny, if we had video, you could see that there are nodding heads and, and there's <laughs> thumbs up and people are smiling and, and kind of like, it, is this my moment to say how, how much I agree? Um, I, I think for a long time we have had that, that kind of conversation about um, sui generis. And I saw Russell McCutcheon's post recently on, I think it was Facebook maybe first or Twitter later, where he had put a Google engram of sui generis versus lived religion. And there's this moment when sui generis appeared and then escalated up to a peak and then declined extremely rapidly. And what took off was lived religion. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hearing a little bit in the way you describe there's something about the thing that we're describing. There's something about the analysis we're doing. There's something about the, what's the third one? I'm sorry. Oh, the critique. The critique that we're doing that has to do with that object that's at the, that, 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 that's at the end. And that that object has not uniqueness from everything else, but distinctiveness in a certain way that merits our focus. 
Am I following? following I don't think that that it's the object that has distinctiveness. Mm. I think there's a distinctiveness in the way we talk about it. So, so that like associate, like when I talk to colleagues at my institution from history or from sociology who are studying religion, they talk about religion differently than we Mm. do. Oftentimes they have a, what I would say, a more prescriptive stand. Religion is a problem to be solved. In religious studies, we don't talk about religion as a problem to be solved. It's a, it's a, it's something to, that we try to understand. Right, am I wrong? Am I wrong, Kevin? <laughs> Help me out. No, I think think you're right. And as coming from a, a smaller school that is in the United Methodist tradition, it's been complicated by the history of the religion program as a Christian studies program before I arrived there six years ago. So the other departments really thought this was something that they should not touch and that they should send students. If you want to talk about religion at all, you have to go somewhere else. And we actually saw in our data for our freshmen as they move forward, they have to take the global perspectives inventory, that they improved on all of the metrics related to global perspectives except for understanding religious difference in which they actually declined. And we fortunately were able to get a grant from the Wabash Center to study this and found really that it was that our colleagues outside the religion program thought that they couldn't touch religion, so they would bring up issues and then just drop them. Mm -hmm. And so students, for the first time, were really seeing, oh, there are problems related to religion in the world. And my colleagues were like, yep, and we're not going there. So if you want to do that, go take a religious studies class. And so I think that was something that we had to deal with across the disciplines. Yeah, and I, prior to working at the University of Alabama, I worked at a small private liberal arts college, Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, um, and worked on redesigning the curriculum uh, for our religious studies department. And I see a lot of similarities, of course, in what I was doing there and what I'm doing at the University of Alabama so far as we're often competing with these other disciplines within the school Mm -hmm. for the right to talk about and do what we say is our expertise. And I think... I guess the, my argument has been not so much that these other disciplines can't do it, but they haven't done it. And every time we have to win the students over. Mm-hmm. And, and I think at the University of Alabama, where we've seen that with our students, is that they often come into disciplines where they're more familiar with the term. So they've heard of anthropology. They've heard of psychology, sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, we get them in religious studies because of our core and general ed. Um, and then they continue because they like what we've done and they see that it's something different than what they're getting elsewhere. And so their work has to be their proof. Their work has to be what they put on LinkedIn. And our graduate students mm-hmm. in our master's program similarly are having to make that case, that they're using you know, the sort of idea of digital, digital humanities and digital skills and public humanities to articulate what it is that they're doing differently, seeing um, and presenting that's not being done elsewhere. And so it, it sort of puts their, you know, their backs against the wall to make the case that what they're saying matters. But I think it's from that place that uh, they're most um, interesting to people. You know, I think audiences are responding well to what they're working. They're doing well in terms of placement and things. And so I think that it's convenient for the literacy guidelines to be like, see, here's our place. But if our students and if our scholarship doesn't do that work, then I think we end up in the kind of trouble that, that Kevin was referring to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to go back to so to kind of back to some of the things that Jenna was saying, that Rebecca was saying as well. Uh, that there is something uh, in the degree in religion. Um, there's an intensity in religion that other areas of human life don't necessarily have. And one of the things we contribute is the competency to engage critically, to engage interculturally, interpersonally with people around things that matter more to them than anything else, and do that in a way that is productive, respectful, but also critical and and sincere, and and that that does not 
not simply leave it alone, as Kevin says. Not, not that We don't tiptoe lightly around religion. We come right at it. And we have hard conversations, and we give our students a comfort level at having hard mm-hmm. conversations. And that is a, that's a life skill, that's a citizenship skill, and that's also a job skill. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ability to, sorry, go ahead, Bradley. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree, and I think just coming back to this idea of what do we do that's distinct, and then how does that train students who are then um, able to explain those distinct skills and, and training sets, I think what we do is we're saying we, we don't begin with the idea that religion is compartmentalized. I mean, so many mm-hmm. of our colleagues begin with, oh, religion's a component of this community. Mm-hmm. Um, once we get that component in place, we can put the erector set together, and then we'll really <laughs> understand gender or race or, or politics and whatever's going on there. We begin with, well, hey, religion is our primary object of study. And we, we're betting on the fact, and we're actually all sitting around the table, and I'm, I, I wonder if you all agree, that if we bet on that thesis – then we'll be able to unlock those other aspects that we're really interested in that, that overlap in ways that would have never been possible before, right? And so why do we need religious studies? Because it's, it's a unique way of foregrounding one aspect, religion, that we think pervades every other aspect. And then that unlocks uh, views and, and approaches and understandings and perspectives that would have been unavailable if we had just sort of approached this from what we take to be mainstream sociological, anthropological, historical um, methodologies. So, so let me read for just a second from the document. Let's be textual for a moment. <laughs> Students in any field, from the humanities to political science to business to the STEM disciplines, should learn something about how religion shapes and is shaped by the way humans view the world. I know that some of the criticism that I've heard of these guidelines initially was that it was giving the field away, right? Mm-hmm. That, that the broadness of it, and, and they describe it in some of the ways that we've been doing it, but it says at the top of the executive sen- summary, first line in the document, every college graduate ought to have a basic understanding of religion as a part of the human experience. So if we, in the criticism of this document, if we let the historians talk about religion, not that we could ever prevent such a thing, but, but if... If religion departments fold and history or philosophy or anthropology becomes the places where religion is is talked about, um, I'm hearing that we lose something that I think everyone at the table thinks is really vital about the perspective here. Jenna, Jenna phrased it as a, as a perspective. Um, what did I say? What was did. the context? That, that I, I, I phrased it as an object of study, and you said, no, it's more about how we view how we that. Discuss yeah, how we yes. discuss that. Or um, discourse. Or discourse. It's a discourse. Yeah, yeah. discourse. Um, Kevin, you, you, you seem like you have you yeah, I mean, chime in. The idea of giving the discipline away, I think, is, is just doesn't, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Like, for me, my students, the discipline's already gone before they come mm. to the school. They're not here for religious studies. They don't know why they have to take a gen ed class that we don't, they don't actually have to take a religion class, but that's one of the frequent classes that they do take. Mm. They don't know why they're there. They think that's not relevant to their professional program and their job. So giving the discipline away is actually how we become relevant again in my context, mm. how we help students understand and hopefully they're advisors don't tell them that this is irrelevant to you, right? As sometimes they do. So the students show up thinking maybe actually this can be relevant to me, or at least I have the the tools to say this actually is going to be relevant to you. And in fact, here are classes in your professional program that your department has identified as trying to help with this too, but we're going to go a lot deeper here. 
you you describe yourself when you when you opened. Can can you say again how many people there are in your department? There are two of us in our departments. Yeah. So, so I feel similarly. I teach at Salem State College, which is a very small Massachusetts state school, and we only have two people: one permanent and one contingent. Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that might be the case for a lot of us, where we are teaching in extremely small departments. Chris is raising his hand. He he's a department of one, one, right? Um, Richard might be, and and Brad a little bit, but I think Richard even more is the one of us that's at the largest department, right? You you have a, a, a dozen faculty members now. Thereabouts, oh, Brad, Brad a dozen, too. Right? Can, can we can we talk can we talk about? For a second, how religious literacy? Because I because I hear a little bit in, in what Kevin's saying that, in his context, maybe that doesn't that doesn't work. And and I wonder if we can speak to that a little bit a little bit more. Well, I think one of the interesting uh, Rebecca was talking about the difference between literacy and competence, mm. and I think that's a really helpful mm-hmm. distinction. For my department, first selling literacy is 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 a big piece. Yes, it's basic. It doesn't get as far, but it's a skill. It's not simply information and knowledge. It's a skill that can serve students who are not majoring in religion because Mm -hmm. if we have eight majors in religion, our program is up. Um, So the idea that this basic set of skills that can help them continue to learn and engage with people, not just have knowledge base, but apply that in new contexts, learn new situations, learn religious traditions affecting different parts of life. That selling is huge. Yeah, so I, uh, Rebecca, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I think that building off of that, one of the things that when we think about how literacy works is that in order, before one can be literate, one has to understand the language. And one of the things that Jenna did when she first got to uh, MTSU is she she built the general education religious studies course and they really wanted her to do a course that was going to be uh, kind of a world religions comparative religions course but she very intelligently and astutely observed that before we could even begin to think about religious content our students had to learn how to talk about religion and so that is what our introductory course is is a course called religion and society where the students learn how to speak about religion, how to classify it, how to think about it before they even get to any of the content-based material. And to build upon that, um, what I'm hearing about this, I also, this interesting thing about giving away the the discipline, I think is so interesting. It sounds very like it's a birthday party or something, (laughs) Um, is to also think about um, how what our students actually want. We talk about like packaging up this thing called this religious studies major, but we haven't talked about what actually students want or what's working. I mean, we, we talk to students all the time um, and our institutional context flavors that, right? And you've actually done research, haven't you, at Shenandoah about what students, I can't remember what your grant was, but at our institutional context, a lot of times, and Rebecca, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, we have right now, I think, 32 majors in religious studies and three faculty members, and um, we're growing every year. A lot of times what happens is they take our classes and they just want a reason to major, I mean, don't you think? And so we'll tell them religious literacy, religious literacy will help you in any context. 
are you going to work with human beings when you graduate? Many human beings are religious. So what I, so having that re- basic religious, this is my spiel, right? <laughs> having that basic religious literacy will help you with your future patients, clients, students, coworkers, et cetera, right? Yes, I think that that is true. But a lot of times they're, they're excited about the content. They're enthusiastic. In our institutional context, it's Baptist, Church of Christ, um, and Methodists are the predominant um, religions, and then people who are angry at the Islamic Center down the road, right? And so, um, they—that's that's our institutional context. They're very then those students are excited to be our majors and double, and it's about double majoring. We designed our program specifically so it is, it is a very a very strong complement to a second major. Rebecca and I were both double majors in undergrad, and here we are. <laughs> and now our, we have come to the culmination of our careers on this podcast with you all. <laughs> I find it really interesting that you mentioned communication about religion as being fundamental to becoming literate about it, knowing how to talk about it being able to speak about it, be able to ask questions about it. And that's something I really don't see in these guidelines is anything about communication skills mm-hmm. or the interpersonal skills to be able to navigate the the discourse or talk about it in public context, whether that be professional, civic. Yeah. So I, I think that's just an interesting, interesting piece that is not coming through in, the, in these guidelines is those yeah. communication skills. Well, I think in part, you know, to play with the metaphor of gift, um, I think actually what these guidelines do is buy a space for the yeah. for religious studies, sort of as a guild or as a field, to have a discipline where they can begin to sell whatever they want to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that because I mean these guidelines are attached to funding, right? They're mm-hmm. attached to Arthur Bonning Davis. They're attached to Lilly. They're attached to Luce. They're attached to all sorts of foundations who have a vested interest one way or the other in how religion serves in a larger discourse. And um, one space where I've sort of been working on thinking about how that works and where the ramifications are in terms of sort of the scholarship of teaching and learning. And I mean, those that discourse comes out of a um, interest that is tied to public communication about religion and the idea that religion needs to be part of the um, the way that good citizens speak, um, understanding what it is and how that works. Um, my problem with Starting there, though, and, and making that the sort of be-all, end-all of literacy is that we don't get to ask about who's speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I see a lot of departments of religious studies use the John Kerry line from a number of his speeches. This is part of his, like, stump speech when he was uh, at the State Department about, you know, he wishes he would have taken more comparative religions courses. And so there we go. There's our ad. But this is the same state secretary who created videos of like sort of fake videos about ISIS saying, look at how crazy ISIS is for their beheadings and all this stuff, which of course leads to an uptick in the kind of work that ISIS was doing. And so it's that sort of short-sightedness, like are we going to be in bed with that kind of discourse rather than analyze how that works, mm-hmm. that these literacy guidelines make me question. Like I want to be able to do the types of sk- – like the, present students with the skill sets that I think y'all, uh, that Jenna and Rebecca talked about in their article um, – and what I'm afraid of is that when you have guidelines that are attached to things like rubrics on teaching properly about religion, that you limit yourself to speaking about religion in ways that are legible to those kinds of interests um, and not in the ways that ask about whose interest this serves, who gets to evaluate how religion works and works well. I, I, I agree. I, I, I was nodding the whole time you were speaking. And I, to me, that comes back also to what do students want? 
And so oftentimes when we teach to the rubric, we're looking past our students to our administrators, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And when we, from my experience has been when we teach, you know, my students come into the, the classroom um, wanting to understand, I mean, once they take an intro class, just like all of you have said, they want to take more classes. And some of that interest is, is the fact that they're finding in our department a way to understand like really critical issues in their world. And that could be counterintuitive. That could be through studying medieval aesthetics, but somehow they're finding the, the skills to not only have religious literacy, but that religious literacy is translating into self-literacy and, and sort of their own world and environment literacy. And I think we don't sell that enough. I'll be really honest. Like I think we're getting better at selling the utility of the humanities. Oh, this will help you on the LSAT. This will help you here or there. Um, some folks still want to sell the sort of soul-searching thing. Oh, the, the colleges, you know, not everyone has money for four years of soul-searching, and, and people need to get jobs. But I, we often undersell, I think, the fact that the skills that we might offer, not only as in the humanities but in religious studies particularly, are the abilities for that kind of long-term, long-sighted, like far-sighted thinking that doesn't undercut the most critical issues of our time. I mean, you know, I see Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter saying, oh, we have so much knowledge and we, have, we don't have any wisdom. And I'm thinking, that's what we do. We want to sort of give people the skills to sort of like engage in the world wisely um, through studying religion. But it's often hard to explain that to funding bodies and to our deans and everyone else. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if I can ask Rebecca, because you've been part of the teaching against Islam um, Islamophobia. Islamophobia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Let the record show. <laughs> you've been part of the, Rebecca, you've been part of the Teaching Against Islamophobia uh, workshop with Wabash that's distinguishing between what it means to teach about Islam and what it means to teach against Islamophobia. And I don't see the ability to wrestle with that distinction here. And so I'd like to, I was wondering if you would speak a bit about how you think that relates to religious literacy or religious competence. Yeah, I think that I've been very fortunate to be part of that group, and uh, I, I think that part of what, when I first was applying for it, that made it seem like I didn't think I was going to be accepted into this cohort was partially because, you know, I'm a scholar primarily of Christianity, and so we tend to assume that Islamophobia is an issue around Islam and that it's about Muslims, and so for me, being part of that cohort the majority of Islamophobia is being practiced by Christians, right? And so thinking about how Islamophobia works out in as a Christian practice, and then how do we teach these very difficult practices, discourses, uh, rhetorical moves from within religious traditions? So there's kind of a number of different layers um, that are at play there. And when we're thinking about teaching about or against Islamophobia, for example, or really anything, what we're doing is... Te- teaching our students to ask the questions, right? So I'm not standing up and saying, oh, Islamophobia is bad and here are all the reasons. I'm saying, how does this come out of Christianity and out of sort of the discourse, the rhetorics, the sort of foundations of kind of certain particular Christian traditions, particular Christian communities, and let the students tease it out. And what they do with that at the end is their choice where they move from it because our role, of course, always as scholars is to not kind of come up with these moral or ethical conclusions. So as we end, because everyone has a very busy schedule here, um, one of the things that I was really struck by in the last few minutes is 
how do we translate this to our administrators, right? Because I have learning outcomes as a contingent faculty that I cannot change. And one of them very explicitly says that my courses are supposed to enhance the spiritual dimension of our students' lives. That's written in the course description, right? So spiritual growth, personal growth, is part of the extension of what has been built into the program and my courses prior to my arrival. Whether I achieve that or not, I will leave for my students to, to decide. But as we end, one of the important things that I think for all of us, because we all have higher-ups that we answer to, um, within the administration, what would you say as a final comment about these religious literacy guidelines and and how you might move forward in your own context to dealing with them. Yeah, I think the guidelines perhaps become a, you know, if the administrator is interested in the guidelines themselves, then so be it. But I guess I would would punt to the idea Mm -hmm. of my students are proof positive of the work that the department's already doing. You know, whether it's the fact that we have students who are working in museums, that we have students who are being placed in graduate school, that students are going to law school, medical school, or talking in their communities about these complicated issues, or just they recognize that what they were doing in our department was useful. Um, I think that is pleasing to administrators. I think when um, departments are also sort of on the forefront of what's going on in the university, largely because we have to prove we exist and we should be there, um, that's a space where uh, Administrators get to be surprised. So, you know, for us at the University of Alabama, it's been starting a master's program that involves sort of digital humanities, public humanities, and sort of the academic study of religion. Um, it could also be our uh, use of undergraduate research, which I think a lot of programs, I mean, I follow the Twitter feeds of a lot of departments, they're getting their students out there doing work. And their work across campuses seems to be super interesting to people, even beyond religious studies. And I think that says a lot to administrators. One of our learning outcomes at Washburn University for general education is uh, global diversity consciousness, the ability to understand how people are different in different parts of the world. We, we, we're running a program in the middle of Kansas as far from other countries as you can get in the United States of America. And so giving students windows into what it's like to be human if I weren't born where I was is very important. And these guidelines give me some language to convince my administrators, you need me. If we want all four-year student graduates to have this level of religious competency, religious literacy, nobody else at this institution has the disciplinary qualifications to do that. So we need a religious program. Even though we're the only school our size in the Midwest that has one, don't cut that. Because <laughs> I know it comes up at trustee meetings. Don't cut that. Yeah. Um, I would say that you know, it's easy for us to critique these guidelines. We are all yeah, academics and scholars, and you know, as uh, at Middle Tennessee, Jenna and I have set critique as one of our core competencies. <laughs> um, but my recommendation for this would be that people read these guidelines closely and find ways that they are going to be helpful in your own institutional context. Uh, one of the co-authors or co-leaders of it, Eugene Gallagher, um, has been an incredible resource to Jenna and I. He came to MTSU, we had a Wabash grant to bring him to campus, and he sat down with us when we were in that key point of planning out the curriculum and really helped us think through major issues, and then also took the time to meet with our university provost and with people in upper administration to explain what the academic study of religion is and its importance. Mm -hmm. So I really think that, well, it's 
fun for us to sort of criticize and say they're not doing enough, they need to do more and do all the things. You know, they these were written by people who really understand how to speak administrative mm-hmm. languages. So Absolutely. we should be we should be using them as as are is appropriate for our own context. Mm-hmm. And and before Brad next, the, the other thing too is to remember how broadly these guidelines are written yeah. for, right? Mm-hmm. That that it is meant to be high school two-year college, four-year college, four-year small liberal arts, four-year research college, the whole range. Mm. And when you speak to a whole range like that, I think some of the criticisms that we have kind of disappear in the appeal to that broadness, right? Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say quickly to, to Rebecca's point, I think one of the wisest pieces uh, in that guidelines is that it's not supposed to be used as a rubric against which departments are measured, mm-hmm. but as the opportunity to have that conversation about here's how we fit into a national, international conversation about this stuff mm-hmm. that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if used in that way, um, it gives space to sort of show departments how unique they are, mm-hmm. you know, which I think administrators like to see too. Like, how are we doing this differently? Um, I think every school has some slogan about difference, like we are different than everybody else, mm-hmm. yet all universities. So, mm-hmm. um, to that work. <laughs> Brad. Uh, I just, I really loved what Chris said about um, basically the practice of students uh, rehearsing playing the roles of other people or stepping into the shoes or the worlds or the communities of others. You know, as you said, Chris, you're in a place that is as far from other countries in, the, in this yeah. country as you can get. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful example of yeah. what you're offering is uh, a set of skills where students rehearse or practice, mm-hmm. right? What it would mean to be someone uh, born um, in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. into a certain religious community, whatever it may be. Um, I don't know. I'm sure everyone at the table is not comfortable calling that a spiritual practice. I don't know what that is, um, mm-hmm. but it is a practice. And I think we, if we don't sell that, we, o- we overlook a lot of what we have to offer, right? We are mm-hmm. saying if we don't want a world full of short-sightedness, full of crudity, if we want something that avoids um, what I'll just say is, is sort of overtaking our sort of political and, and civic climates um, as we speak, then we have to have universities that are more than just um, sort of pre-professional training. They have to include that kind of practice. Call it spiritual, call it personal growth, call it whatever you want. But if that's not part of education, that's not part of teaching and learning, then I don't know what is. And to me, that's why I I'm still firmly believe in religious studies as something that's incredibly, incredibly important for um, you know the modern research university, the liberal arts university, the, the two-year college, uh, wherever it may be. Kevin, do you want to share next? Yeah, uh, I really appreciate those powerful words, Brad. Mm-hmm. I think in my context, much like Christopher's, that this, is a, this backs up what we're doing. There are two of us, right? <laughs> Our word only goes so far that our discipline is essential to, um, as everyone else is making that argument as well in the humanities, that this gives us something to really put forward. That no, we actually, you need us here as part of your gen ed, that we have vital things to offer students who are not coming here to major in religion because that's not what's supporting the university and keeping it going. So it helps back us up. It helps us promote the, the understanding of religion as um, something that is studied to understand the world that had not previously really been popularly understood on campus before we showed up. So I think there's really a lot of value there for us to continue the sort of work we're doing and and have something bigger than us beyond us that, that says, oh no, actually these people are speaking from, from a disciplinary perspective. Yeah, and so I think that your original question had something to do with 
our our learning or program goals or something like that, and speaking to our, um, administrators. And so Rebecca and I are in, this, are in the situation where we wrote the program goals and learning outcomes. So if we we are displeased with them, we only have ourselves to blame. Um, but um, as far as speaking uh, to administrators, um, I'm going to echo what Richard said in some ways, which is that our students are our best advocates. Um, an advertisement for the necessity of our programs and um, the importance of them. And the more I think that we invest um, our time in them and don't forget that they are the, at least in our institutional context, we're not an R1. And I think that for those of us here, um, that they are the reason that we're we're here um, and remind ourselves of that, that and keep celebrating their successes and advertising their successes, um, like the proud teachers, scholars that we are, um, we won't lose sight of, of our mission as religious studies teacher scholars that we are, um, because they're amazing. And I think that part of what you were saying, Brad, too, um, is that we are, that these, when Rebecca and I were creating the program, we always use the word creativity also, um, so that there's critical thinking, which gives dance, you know, thrown about and we were very specific about what we meant about what critical thinking meant but also we always put in that word about creativity because we are a creative discipline and that's and and that is an a creativity and innovation is very important for this generation of students as well so um with that i'll turn over to you what a wonderful note to end on (laughs) because we have all sat here for 45 minutes out of our busy schedule and created something that we're going to share with everyone and i'm very thankful for your time today and very supportive of all of your works and all of your different contexts i'm so pleased to be able to share this with everyone today and uh i hope you all have a wonderful conference thank you thank you thank you That was indeed a colossal amount of Young Voices, Dave, but a really fabulous discussion on what religious literacy means in their specific contexts. I thought for a minute, if it's okay with you, we might just talk about what religious literacy means in my context, in the museum context. I was hoping you would say a few words about that because it's so different, not only Australia, but also a museum and not just any museum, but as you're going to tell us right now. Yes, not just any museum, but the Sydney Jewish Museum, which is both a a museum about Jewish uh, faith and culture, but also um, a museum about the Holocaust as well. And Religious literacy in our context is so much about creating, it's actually really so much about civics and citizenship education, as we would call it in Australia. It's about creating active, well-educated, broad-minded citizens that are aware of other people's beliefs, of other people's histories, so that when they go out into the world, they are they are considerate, they think about other people's perspectives, they practice empathy, and it's about really helping them function as active citizens in a multicultural world, in a globalised world. And so whether that's learning about Jewish faith and culture from a religious studies perspective, as we do do that with numerous students, or whether it's about learning it from a Holocaust perspective, both of those are avenues of learning and avenues of education which help 
our students who come through the museum and the general public as well to have that greater sense of empathy. And we like to link it to human rights concepts and human rights abuses in the world today, whether they be religious or more broad than that, so that people can really go out and make a difference and ensure that each faith has has its space in the world and each faith is treated with dignity and respect. So it is quite a, a different context and it's one in which we're very focused on sort of helping students, not telling them what to think, but teaching them that they need to think. They need to think about others and they need to think about their context more broadly. I hope that's what you were hoping for when looking at my context, Dave. It is. That's that's such an amazing answer. I wish you could have been a part of our conversation. I think you really would have added that twist to it. Uh, everyone that I that I spoke with was um, a, a a current faculty member at uh, a university in the United States. The the geographical locations, the structure of the programs, whether or not they offered uh, graduate degrees, or uh, whether it was only undergraduate degrees, those all were. Um, uh, a different for them. I was the only contingent or um, adjunct faculty who was sitting at, at the table, uh, but we had no one in in the conversation who was working totally outside the academy and fully employed outside of the academy. And so, to, to hear that, I think really echoes a lot of the things that we talked about. For listeners who would like to hear more about. Um, Holocaust Museums. Uh, you have an interview coming up, uh, not next time, but the time after that uh, with um, Avril Alba. Yes, correct. Yes, I interviewed um, Dr. Avril Alba. She's um, at the University of Sydney, um, but her major work is actually on Holocaust Museums as a sacred space, but also as an edu- educative space as well. So yeah, in a fortnight's time, um, little teaser for that one. I'm really, I really enjoyed that interview and I think it's a bit different from some of the interviews that um, we've had of late. So it's a really interesting one. Um, but next week, we also have a cracker. What do we have next week, Dave? We're delighted to introduce one of our new um, RSP interviewers, Maxine Connolly Panagopoulos. And she has brought just a, a really interesting interview. And she acknowledges right at the beginning that this is an area um, of study that may be unfamiliar to many of the listeners. And that is exploring African shamanism and white sangomas in South Africa. And she has interviewed Dr. Ulrich Kleinhempel. And we're thrilled to present that to you next week. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>